Welcome on into the Superintendent Radio Network and episode 32 of Beyond the Page, the podcast that goes a little deeper into some of the stories and columns in Golf Course Industry Magazine. I'm Matt Lowell, Managing Editor of the magazine, and I'm joined today by a trio of great guests. One, two, three, count them. Up first, Golf Course Industry Editor-in-Chief Guy Cipriano and Editorial Assistant Cassidy Gladio, who joined me to talk about our June cover package all about Twitter, the app that changed turf. Why write about Turf Twitter now? Why is Turf Twitter such a nice place? Should you consider adding another social media platform? And lots more. Great conversation with both of them. After that, our California correspondent, Judd Spicer, called in to discuss his story about flat stick fever and the rise of putting courses. If you have a spare acre or two, adding a putting course might be one of the best moves you could suggest for the long-term health and growth of your facility. Before any of that, though, a quick word from CPRO, the proud sponsor of Beyond the Page. Turf plant growth regulators are a critical tool in keeping every course in top-notch condition. They not only help to reduce clippings on warm and cool season grasses throughout the season, but they help manage and enhance poa annua to enhance the overall turf quality and the conditions of the course. CPRO provides industry-leading turf plant growth regulators like Cutlass and Legacy and Musketeer to the golf industry, along with disease, weed, and aquatic management solutions. Their full lineup of products works hard to ensure your course is consistently looking its best. Visit them at cpro.com to learn more. Cassidy Gladio and Guy Cipriano, CG and GC, after the break. Welcome back to Beyond the Page. I am Matt Lowell, Managing Editor of Golf Course Industry, joined by my friend and colleague, Editor-in-Chief Guy Cipriano, and our Summer Editorial Assistant, Cassidy Gladio. The first segment today, all about the app, the Change Turf. Guy was going to call it the silly little app, the Change Turf, but there's nothing silly or little about Twitter anymore. I don't know how many people are on it. 19,000 people follow us for some reason. Guy, Cassidy, welcome to the podcast. How you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Hi, Matt. Hi, Cassidy. Ready to talk some Twitter. Guy, if folks haven't checked out the June cover package, the app that changed turf, 7,000 plus words about Twitter, you say you didn't dream up the idea, but you certainly developed it for print and the internet. I think it turned out really well. You and I talked with, I don't know, 15, 20 people, a lot of different perspectives. Why write about Twitter now? Turf Twitter has been around for, for a long time. Maybe it's being superseded by TikTok or Instagram. I don't know. Maybe those questions were investigated in the package as well. But but why write about Turf Twitter now? Well, I was thinking about this by just doing what I do frequently at night, looking on, on, on Turf Twitter. And there was one night where 
it just seemed like everything was so happy and congenial and it's happy and congenial most of the time. And I was thinking, how cool is this? This is a app that's free that brings all these people together from all these different segments of the golf course maintenance and turf community. And then I started thinking, well, I started here at Golf Course Industry in 2014. Twitter was launched in 2006. From the best of our research, uh, Twitter started creeping its way into our golf course maintenance community around 2009, 2010 is when accounts started opening. And I, I started thinking, like, what innovations have come out in the last decade to 15 years that have changed the industry as much as this one? And I couldn't think of one. So I posted something to that extent on my own Twitter account, and it got a lot of likes and retweets and I kept on thinking more and more about it. Like, do we, do we have a, a story here? And you asked why now? Well, just in my eight years of golf course industry, there were times where I thought that like, okay, this is going to lose its relevance in the turf industry. <laughs> people are going to move on to the next big thing. He did think that multiple times. Matt was one of the people who had to uh, talk me out of uh, just not emphasizing it anymore for our brand at golf course industry. But I, I got to think, thinking there's some really good plant protectants that have come out. There's some cool mowing innovations. There's some other pieces of equipment, but none of them have brought the turf community together like this app. And the, the app is probably the most inclusive thing that we have in the turf industry. If you think about it, it's free. Any, anybody can use it. Anybody can have a voice. I think it's really changed who's influential in the industry before uh, we had social media and the internet it used to be that you had to be maybe an association president or hosting a major championship to have a voice in the industry or you know be on the cover of a magazine but now basically anybody in the turf and golf course maintenance world can download this app for free uh start studying it learn how to use it share ideas with a network of of, of people and it, it's really changed so many aspects of the industry that you don't even think of. Like, for example, we, we talked to our friend Matt Pauli at, at Standard Golf, and it's changed how brands interact with their their customers. It, it's changed, or potential customers too, it's changed how associations interact with their members. We talked to the, the wonderful Adam Ickemis of the Michigan Golf Course Superintendents Association, and you know his goal is to have their members engage with the association at least one way per day. And Twitter's a, a, a terrific way to do that. You know, we've we talked to Dr. Michael Woods of the Asian Turfgrass Center. You know, there he is over in Thailand, isolated from a lot of the turf community. And he's able to connect with them and share his ideas and his writing. And you know, how is somebody like Micah able to do that without this app? And we've talked to all these different people. We, I mean, superintendents have been able to recruit employees on there. Employees have been able to recruit where they want to work on there. We talked to Scott Bordner, the director of agronomy of the Union League of Philadelphia, who was on our uh, November cover, the Union League, and what they're building golf-wise with three courses at three different locations, including basically a new build at Union League National. And they've been able to get to their uh, their projects out to the, to the community, to the turf community and let people know how, how big that club is going. It really is remarkable that this thing we have on our phone has brought so many people in the industry together, and it's still going strong. If you look at our impressions and engagements, man, at Golf Course Industry, they're as high as they've ever been still, and it's 2022, and you know, I just remember that day three years ago at our uh, national sales 
manager Russ Warner's house where you and a few other people from our team had to talk me out of de-emphasizing it. Well, you were ready to give up. I'm glad you didn't. One thing that you said there, guy, and, and you somehow summarized 7,000 words in, in a few minutes. I don't know how. But one of the things that you mentioned is how mostly positive turf Twitter is. And this is where I want to bring Cassidy in. So whenever I'm on any of my other various accounts, my personal account or uh, anything I run for my side business or, or I have one account for a hobby, they seem like very toxic places, social media in general, but Twitter in particular. So I kind of want the perspective from someone who is almost half our age. Cassidy is a rising senior at Kent State, has done a lot of great work in general over the last at least three weeks, uh, but lots before she came here. I'm curious, Cassie, your opinion. Now, you use Twitter. I'm sure you use other platforms, social media in general. What is the overall mental health and well-being of the the various platforms? Because Turf Twitter seems pretty healthy. Yeah, I think it's common to say that, like, normally social media is toxic and, like, it's bad for your mental health overall, especially with how often our generation is on it. I think maybe the reason that Turf Twitter is seen in a more positive light is because it's so niche. And a lot of the times if you're looking at social media as a whole, you know, everyone has their own opinions and differing views on things. And of course that um, happens in the industry as well, but you're all there in the same place, like for one reason. And that's to, you know, share what you're doing on your course or um, ask for advice or things like that. And so I don't know. It might be like less competitive in a way as like um, social media as a whole, because when you look at like everyone else on social media, you're comparing yourself and maybe you're comparing <laughs> yourself to like the other golf courses. But I think it might be more positive, seen more positive because it's so niche and um, you guys are just all there to help one another. And I don't think that that's the case for everyone on the rest of social media. Well, like even beyond the the big whether it's national sports or politics, obviously mm. those are very toxic tribal mm. institutions and, and aspects of the, the platforms, but you're very into fashion. Yeah. You follow mostly fashion accounts or, or a lot of fashion accounts? Yeah. Like, what is, what is fashion Twitter like? I, I have no idea. Is it, is it toxic? Is it competitive? Because that seems like a niche thing, but it also seems like something that would be very cutthroat. Yeah, definitely. I think it definitely depends on, like, what angle you look at it. Like, you could look at, um, like, how bad fashion is for the environment. Or (laughs) you could look at, you know, the brands that are doing, like, well, being very sustainable and have good, um, like, working practices, I guess. But, yeah, I think it just depends, like, the angle you look at it in fashion specifically. And so it's that's definitely more of a broad topic than I think like the golf course industry. Like if you want to look at fashion from like one specific angle, like, um, like textiles and like the sustainability, then maybe you get like a more positive outlook because everyone might have the same opinion. No, that makes total sense, Cassidy. And I would say with, uh, turf Twitter and golf course maintenance Twitter, one of the beauties of it is that it's raised awareness for what the profession actually entails uh, people have been able to see how hard the people that work on golf courses uh, have to work to get the job done on a daily basis they see 
all the variabilities that they deal with from weather to personnel issues to the, some of the supply chain issues that, that are going on right now. So in my mind, it's really elevated the, um, the profession by giving a behind the scenes look at what the people that maintain golf courses go through on a daily basis. I mean, what golfer is there at 5 a.m.? But, you know, I'll wake up at 5.15 a.m., look at my feet and already see pictures from, <laughs> from golf courses. So it's helped the industry that way. And I think it's also helped the industry against some of the external public relations tussles that it, it, it sometimes faces. I mean, you brought up sus sustainability in the environment with the, the fashion industry. I would say that, you know, one of the biggest advocates or biggest platforms golf has for telling its environmental story is social media because you, you, you see these amazing green spaces with all this wildlife diversity and plant diversity and, and, and they're being managed the right way in high density urban and suburban areas. So you know, Twitter is a really uh, powerful tool for making people aware of what golf course maintenance is that aren't in golf course maintenance for the people that trickle into the accounts that are, are um, the people that we follow and our readers and listeners and uh, sources have. And I would say that uh, my experience with social media, I started it when I was covering Penn State football. And I will say that turf Twitter and golf course maintenance Twitter is a heck of a lot more congenial than college football Twitter. I mean, you don't say. yeah, boy, Penn State losing a night game and you do something as uh, simple as tweet out the score. You should see what people are, are, are sending your way. So you develop a pretty quick skin that way. And, you know, I, I occasionally look at some college football accounts now, not not too often. And I just see some of the things that people t uh, who cover college football or, or are fans of a team or even the teams themselves get uh shoved at them on social media. It's pr pretty remarkable. So, you know, I've heard over the years of people say, oh, you know, I'm leaving turf Twitter. Twitter. It's a hostile place. I don't, and, and a few people I, have. I don't need that negativity. But the yeah. great thing about social media is that you get to pick who you want to follow. And, and one of the uh, superintendents that I interviewed for the story said that if he is following anyone that posts anything negative, he automatically unfollows that person because he wants positivity in his feed. So ultimately you as the user can control what you're seeing and what the discourse could be by the type of people you associate yourself with. It's kind of like non-digital life, right? Like I choose to hang out with Matt because Matt's a good person. And, and, you know, instead of hanging out with the rough crowd, I, I hang out with Matt. So it's kind of like the, I'm not the rough crowd. Uh, well, no comment, you, but you didn't know me, before. but no, I mean, and that's the thing about it. I think it's, um, it's like anything in the world, right? It's, it's, what you put into it and how you use it and how you interpret it is what, what you get out of it. I am curious, Cassidy, because you were probably, gosh, in certainly in elementary school, maybe younger than 10, when we both signed up for Twitter, you were not on there at that point in time. How do you, and, and I, I can't really compare it to how people in the industry or people in their 30s or 40s or older use it, but what do you see in terms of how folks in their early and mid-20s are using not only Twitter, but other various social media platforms, whether that's TikTok or you've, you've taught us stuff about TikTok already uh, just this week. I think they're definitely getting more bold and like less afraid to share their opinion. Like I know when I was growing up, it was very much like, um, oh, like be careful what you post, like a future employer is going to like look you up and see that and yeah. like stuff like that. And sometimes I will see things that people post and I'm just like really surprised. And like even now, like 
Like, I have, like, my journalism Twitter and then, like, my Twitter where I retweet Taylor Swift's things and stuff like that. But I think my generation's definitely become less afraid to share their opinion and they they don't care if their future employer knows their opinion on things, you know? Like, I think it's definitely more, like, opi- like opinionated and more candid, I would say. I mean, still don't be, don't come across as like a truly awful, reprehensible human being with some awful perspectives. But as long as you're just a regular teenager, 20-something, nothing to worry about. Right. And the, yeah, just to play off that, Cassidy, is one thing that I've used in my non-social media life is that you can't, just because you somebody's posting something on an app where there's a character limit, and it may not exactly be something that you agree with. It doesn't mean that, that that's a bad person or someone that you couldn't have a, a drink with or a nice sit-down conversation or play around a golf with. So I think that also you have to realize that on social media, you're only seeing a snapshot into a person. You're not, you're not seeing the, the entire thing or interacting with the entire thing. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're seeing what people want you to see mm-hmm. to a large degree, sure. And I've heard that complaint from superintendents, too. Like, wh- why do I need to be on there? It's just a, a, a highlight reel and a place for people to show off. And, you know, my course has had a – our course has had a tough summer. And, you know, there isn't much to show off. But, you know, I, I think that's great that people are proud of their work and w- want to share it with either their members or their, their customers or their friends in the industry or their, or their vendors. So – uh, that's one of the points I do hear is that it's nothing but a, a highlight reel, and that's not really indicative of what the you know, job is like day to day. But I think that highlight reel, like I said before, uh, creates curiosity for what the rest of the job is like. In regard to the highlight reel comment, one of the people I talked with, regular contributor, maybe in Turfhead's Takeover again later this year, Donovan McGuigan out in Princeton, New Jersey, loves Instagram and when I talked with him for one of the sidebars in there, mentioned that Instagram really is a highlight reel. It's it's really only the best of, of what you shoot, and he's trying to do a better job and, and a more thorough job of showing the course maybe when it's not at its best. One of the ways, and we've mentioned it a few times here in the last 15 minutes, but one of the other platforms I think that could provide more than just a highlight reel is TikTok, because there are quite a few people in the sports field side of things, and there is a few on the golf course maintenance side of things that use it as a way to show progress. Uh, you can show different patterns. You can show people at work. I'm going to just throw it out there, and whoever wants to start this, Cassidy or Guy, any, any perspective, any thoughts, any opinions on the future of turf talk? Because I think it's coming. Uh, and I talked with, with Leah Withrow uh, who's the head groundskeeper of the Reno Aces and, and one of the leading turf talk voices right now. But I think she'll be joined by others here fairly soon. Any thoughts on the growth of that platform over the next, I don't know, two, three years? This is all you, Cassidy. Well, the only thing I have to say is I think, like, people go on Instagram and they they know, obviously, it's a highlight reel. Like, you can put any filter on whatever you want. You're going to post your best picture. Everyone does it. Like... I go on there knowing, like, what I'm saying. Um, TikTok, I think, on the other hand, it's expected to be, like, more behind the scenes and, like, candid. Like, I – like, you people learn so much from TikTok, and it's just from, like, showing things that you don't normally see day to day. And so I think that that would 
that is something that like the industry could benefit from is showing like maybe like the growth of your course and like when it's not at its best because I know even I go on there and I enjoy seeing just to like learn things and like seeing like what it's supposed to look like or like the progress so yeah I I really like the idea that people are on there and showing more can more candid aspects of it it definitely I think that's what TikTok is it's more candid it also strikes me as being a fun app too Cassidy is that a good place for people to show how fun the job could be be and maybe use it as a recruiting tool more so than some of the other social media apps yeah definitely and especially like playing off of the trends and things like that I think it's a really good way to reach um that younger audience especially if you're looking at it from a recruitment standpoint this is in one of the sidebars on the cover package, but Leah in Reno actually has found two members of her part-time game day crew who reached out unsolicited uh, on on TikTok. So I don't think it's the solution for the industry's labor problems, but it could be a solution. One of the other things, too, with TikTok and Casty, you are a lot deeper into that platform than I am. I've, I've observed from the sideline for a few months, but I've posted nothing, is it seems like a lot of people, Leah included, use it as a video editing platform. So there's a lot more planning in TikTok than there might be in Twitter, where Twitter, you wake up at 4, you go to the course at 4.30, let's take a photo of our mower, let's take a photo of the sunrise, let's take a photo of the sun as it comes up over the, the pond or whatever. Whereas on TikTok, maybe you're showing progress of a various project or mowing over the course of a morning or a day I think the effect can be a lot more powerful, but it might take a little more planning. Does that seem accurate from your perspective and your use? Yeah, definitely. I think it definitely takes a lot more planning, especially if you want to show something like that. And even like just it, TikTok is like beginner friendly, but having a base base level knowledge of video editing and if you know what you want to do, being able to put that together is definitely beneficial. It is a little bit more advanced than going to snap a photo and clicking tweet for sure. Guy, what do you think? You've, you've been on TikTok for about two hours at this point. <laughs> Here's what I wonder. I mean, Twitter, Matt, in a lot of ways dominates our work life, right? Easily. Be because Easily it's where our audience is. It's the best place that we found to get our content out and share what we're doing with others. And, it takes an incredible amount of time to do Twitter, right? Whether you're representing your brand golf course industry or, you know, my own account too, I, I put a lot of time into because that's a work account. Uh, what I wonder, Cassidy, is with you and your friends and your classmates and people your age, do, do they even use Twitter? Is Twitter even a, a thing with your your peer group? No, yeah, I think Twitter is definitely still very relevant. Um Within, like, I guess my generation, I know me personally, I go through phases with it. I kind of forget it exists some months, and then other months I can't stop retweeting or sharing my thoughts. So I definitely go through phases, but I would say it's definitely still relevant. Because you, uh, we don't want to give too much of it away, but we have a, a chart that runs with the, uh, the cover package of our June issue, and it's kind of startling when you look at the number of uh, people that use Twitter compared to some other social media apps. I mean, I don't think it's spoiling too much. People can look this up. It's it's not some great hidden secret. We just certainly didn't research this. Twitter in the U.S. is the 10th most used, or I should say among 
U.S.-based social media apps is the 10th most used social media platform based on monthly average users, and it's 16th globally. There's six Chinese platforms ahead of that as well. So the fact that that many other platforms are used more than Twitter, it sounds like you were surprised, Guy. I was because I spent so much time on Twitter, I didn't realize that some of these other apps even existed. Cassie, what else is on your phone? What else What else do you use? Matt, that's a personal question here. Well, not, not <laughs> all apps. I don't care about that. Just social media apps. Uh, Unless you have burner accounts. Don't talk about burner no, accounts. No, yeah. I can. I definitely use all the main ones. Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter. I go on Pinterest sometimes. Okay. There's one called Visco that I remember exists every now and what then. What is that? I've never even heard that's of That's another like photo sharing app. It's very aesthetic. Okay. Probably not good for this industry, I'll be honest. But it's it's another social media platform. Facebook, I don't use, but I have it on my phone. Mm. I don't know. It's more for my family's benefit, but I don't use it. Um, trying to think if I have any other ones. I might take a look. I have a whole folder of social media. A folder? Yeah, yeah you have LinkedIn. Twitter. Okay, oh, okay there I you have go. LinkedIn. <laughs> Makes sense. That's it. Guy, I know you have... Twitter, and I know you have Facebook because I've been logged into your Facebook from my work computer for the last three years. Yeah, we won't get Matt started on on, on Facebook. We do not need to have that no, th- just, this discussion go in that direction. But yeah, I have Facebook, and one of the sidebars we wrote to the cover story is about uh, the golf course maintenance group on Facebook that was established by mm-hmm. Gary Gregg, and it, it's got, I think, somewhere like around 19,000 followers. It might even be over 20,000 followers now. It's in the story. I just can't remember what we put in the, the story. And he's got people from all over the world in there. He's got pretty rigid rules. It's just work talk. But it's another wonderful place where industry professionals could throw out a question and connect with each other and see what other people are doing and uh, get a pulse on the industry. And Gary did it because when he graduated from Michigan State over 50 years ago, you know, he graduated with an agronomy degree, was going to probably work in agriculture. That job wasn't there when he graduated. Um, decided to take a look at a golf course job and just needed a place to go to learn information. There wasn't a lot of it out in the late late 60s when he was coming out, out of school. And he's doing it as a way to g- give back and give people that are new to the industry or been in the industry a, a place to go to share the information. And really, there, there are a few barrier to entries to that. You have to f- meet some requirements that Gary set up, but they're not really overly um, tough requirements to meet. And yeah, uh, that's one of the main reasons why I use Facebook is just to see what the discussion is in that golf course maintenance group. And, you know, I I found that, like, for me, I I visit golf courses and go to these events, and I might have a great day with somebody, and you just don't know when you're ever going to get back. But we, you know, follow each other on Twitter, maybe even become Facebook friends. And it's given me a personal way to connect with some of these people that I deal with my with professionally and i find that that's really helped on the job seeing what somebody's up to you know what what trips are going on or what they're doing at work or how their family's doing and when i do see that person again we usually start the conversation with something that we saw each other doing on social media and then we kind of have that personal connection and then when we go into talking business that business conversation becomes even more effective because of the personal connections we made by staying in touch through twitter and facebook leave you both with this where should people be on social media in the next year, two years, three years? Obviously, Twitter's not going away, but would it benefit folks in the turf industry to maybe add another platform or spend a little more time somewhere else as well in addition to Twitter? Or is Twitter just going to remain 
the undisputed number one, at least in this corner of the world? I would say if you have the ability to add TikTok to your list of platforms used. Definitely, like I said, it takes takes some getting used to. It takes a little bit of knowledge. But if you have the time and the skill to invest, I think it would be worth it within the next coming years for sure. Matt, what do I know about this subject? Uh, you had to talk me off the uh, Twitter ledge a few years ago, and here we are recording a podcast and writing a cover story about it. So go with what Cassidy said. <laughs> well, he's Guy Cipriano. She's Cassidy Gladio. You're going to hear a lot more from them over the course of, well, from Cassidy this summer, from Guy, the foreseeable future until he retires to a cabin in West Virginia. I'm Matt Lowell, and I'll be back in about 15 seconds with contributor Judd Spicer talking about the rise of the putting course. My next guest on this episode of Beyond the Page, he is a frequent guest, he is a frequent contributor to Golf Course Industry Magazine, Judd Spicer, joining us from somewhere on the West Coast today, I don't know, but talking about something that was really, really fun to get in the magazine, really fun to read, and I'm sure it was really fun to write. Flat stick fever, putting courses, providing a jolt to facilities, looking to keep customers around longer, and attracting golf newcomers. Judd, welcome back. Always great to talk with you. Matt, good to be back. To specify, I'm still in sunny, if not sizzling, Palm Desert, California where we're looking at about 107 today. Is that all? Is that temperature? Is that heat index? That's the temp, dude. Well, wear white, stay indoors, SPF 100. Typically, I just go shirtless at the, for about the next three months. <laughs> if you want to show video, I don't know. You guys don't do video for the podcast. Probably best right now, unless you want a topless sick. Well, you are wearing a collared shirt at the moment. So or maybe it's, it's just a gentleman. Game. I don't know. It's a gentleman's game. (laughs) So this story in the June issue, complete blast to read. I have to imagine you had a lot of fun reporting this. You talked with Jay Blasey, who was the architect of the Flamingo at Shadow Mountain. Um, You talked with John Wessels, who's the head course uh, golf course superintendent at Forest Dunes up in Roscommon, Michigan. A lot of great, great people in this industry who Maybe you're thinking about short courses a lot more than than some facilities right now. And you mentioned Shadow Mountain. That's right here in my backyard of Palm Desert. I mean, that was basically the inception for looking at this article and eventually putting it together for you guys in that, yeah, Jay Blasey designed a full-on putting course, a really cool one that I went out and uh, experienced and uh, played uh, called the Flamingo. There's some uh, backdrop behind that name. We could probably skew that in this conversation, but I should say that Shadow Mountain in itself is an interesting property. It is the first golf course in the city of Palm Desert, and now here in the Coachella Valley, we're up to 120 golf courses, so that means something. It dates uh, all the way back to 1958. Is a rare Gene Sarazen design, the Squire. He only designed uh, like five courses in his career. And this is one of them. It's of course, when I first moved out here, Matt, that I enjoyed playing with some regularity. It's a, uh, it's a shorter golf course. 
um, par 70, like about 5,400 yards from the tips. And then I noticed in recent years that they were having problems to the point where they had a GoFundMe page, which was depressing to see. And I tried to help them on my own podcast. I tried to share their social media posts. I don't know if that did anything for them, but ultimately they got new ownership in there. And the new ownership decided that with a certain portion of this property, which was kind of a weird, small, two-sided driving range where you could probably kill somebody, that this was the like the only space on the property that they could really manipulate from a turf standpoint. So they brought in Jay Blasey, and he ultimately designed and then recently debuted, uh, just in April, the Flamingo. And they've set it up there, not just as a putting course, but into what will ultimately be a social environment. They've got like tiki huts out there tabling chairs cocktailing they're going to have some lighting out there the whole thing just really caught my attention and it would have anyway if it wasn't in my backyard so your approach your coming to miniature golf and putting courses is a lot more genuine than mine you were a a golfer golfer i've just always been a fan of miniature golf courses since i was about probably four or five years old and i, I love the old putt putts i never really watched billy packer on the old, oh gosh, what was it called? Putt-Putt Professionals Putter Association TV <laughs> broadcast on NBC-CBS. Say that a few times fast. But from your perspective, and maybe yours is a little more, I think, worthwhile than mine, because you have been in the industry a lot longer than I have. At what point did you notice, or did you notice, a kind of a growing trend of putting courses? Or did you not really until you started reporting this story? I would say not really until digging in. Okay to this article. And that's something, one of the several reasons I enjoy working for you guys and writing with Golf Course Industry Magazine is that we can look at some of these trends in real time. And what I found along the dusty path while reaching out to folks, both in my backyard and across the country, is that this is indeed a trend. And it's, it's a real time trend in the golf world and you use the, you use the word mini golf. And I think what I found in putting this together is that this isn't mini golf, not to correct you on your own. Well, not, you're right. Program. Not in the windmill clown's mouth. Right. Yeah. Which is yeah. what these are, real courses. You, these are, these are real courses. And I, and I think that the traditional mini golf, which that's how I grew up playing with the clown's mouth and the putt putt, that's a different animal than what we're seeing with the courses and properties that are included in this new piece. You mentioned Thistledew at Pinehurst, probably the nation's first miniature golf course. I had the opportunity to play that now about three years ago. It is the only place I've ever seen my editor, your editor, Guy Cipriano, give up on a hole because of, <laughs> of the incline. And we just could not get it, get it in there. He just said, let's move on to the next one. You <clears throat> write about Thistledew in there. Um, I have to imagine that's sort of the template for a lot of facilities these days that are looking into kind of designing their own, putting it onto an acre or two acres, because here's something that Pinehurst doesn't make money off it. If you have a round, you're, you're allowed to play there. It's not like you can get on there for 25, 30, $50 a day. It's something else or if you stay but, there 
for guests right. also complimentary right. amenity. Uh, but it's just kind of how they turn this this small plot of land into something else for folks to use. And you you make the point in here, you know, it's it's a great way for new golfers, whether they're five or fifty-five or hundred five, to really get into the game much more than playing from the tips or even from the uh, from the short tees. I think on uh, a number of the courses that are included in here, and I certainly saw this at Shadow Mountain, that there is uh, undoubtedly, as you experience at Thistledew, uh, and undoubtedly and intentionally, some challenge in these courses mm-hmm. with uh, undulation, uh, with some three or four putts that are going to come up. And that's because that these are created and intended for real golfers. That's not to say that the beginning golfer can't be engaged, isn't going to have a good time out there. Uh, I think that, again, going back to our mini golf conversation, that just having a putter, it's the most democratic club. Anybody that has never even played golf before can pick up a putter and figure out how to roll it, even if it's a bad roll. What these courses are offering, and yeah, Thistledew has been out there for a long time, well over 100 years. That is the first one in the country. But what I saw at Shadow Mountain is that, yeah, well, anybody can go out there on a couple acre property, have a good time, have a cocktail, socialize, that it is architecturally driven. These are intended to challenge real golfers. You have a quote in here from Jay Blasey, and it's, it's such a great quote. And again, Jay Blasey, the architect of the Flamingo at Shadow Mountain, which, as you said, opened just a few months ago, we tried to build in all sorts of fun humps, bumps, side slopes, spines, and ridges. He's not talking at all about tunnels. He's not talking (laughs) about those windmills, but they are definite course challenges, like you said, for real golfers. Absolutely. And when I went out there, I was almost surprised at how tough some of it could be. And the terms that he uses, of course, are architectural terms that he would use in creating a full 18-hole championship golf course. At the same time, Matt, what he talked to me about was, I don't want to put words in Jay's mouth, but that he could kind of let his hair down a little bit. I mean, there's so many things that in creating a putting course as opposed to a full-on golf course that he doesn't have to sweat, he doesn't have to sweat, you know, all of the the routing concerns um, that what, what, he, what he also told me is that, you know, you're, you're more or less, and this is from the same quote that you're creating a landscape. And he, and he went on to tell me some, a few things that I didn't include in the article um, about the architectural freedoms. And I kind of sense that a fun factor for the architect in building this as opposed to all things that they have to sweat when doing a real golf course. Over the course of your reporting, did you visit multiple putting courses or was it, was it just Shadow Mountain that you saw in person, Judd? Just Shadow Mountain for yeah. this one, uh, Matt. I mean, the, obviously, we've got courses across the country included here. We mentioned uh, Thistledew, North Carolina, Forest Dunes in Michigan, Little Meadow putting course in, uh, uh, at Black Butte Ranch in Oregon. And then we also touched upon, I don't know how much you want to talk about this, it was kind of a timing, I guess, that uh, included TGR design and Tiger Woods business. I don't, I don't think 
Tiger Woods needs pumping <laughs> here in. There are some reasons that I decided to, to include that. Obviously, it's kind of an outlier from the rest of the courses that we talked about. Uh, but they're all over the country. And no, I did not have opportunity to, to go visit the other ones. But you talked with a variety. You talked with a handful. In talking oh, yeah. with various architects and superintendents and facility managers, what is your perspective now? Is this, this is, this is a growing trend. This is not going away. This is something that more and more facilities will probably be implementing over the next two, five, 10 years, you think? I got the sense that absolutely. And again, part of it is for the resort guest that, or the kid or the family. I mean, that's still a big part of it. Person that has never played before that just wants to put a club in their hand and, and go have a Shirley Temple walk around and enjoy the vacation or a sunset but that for the the real golfer that after an 18 hole day or at property maybe like Pinehurst where you're going out to play 36 holes that this can be a pretty fun wind down if not a bet setter type opportunity for dudes or gals getaways that haven't had their fill that want a little bit more golf in their golf driven trip. And it's just fascinating to hear all these folks tell me, and there are some numbers here as far as round counts that they actually have, or a few quotes in this article about having to not turn people away, but say like, Hey, you got to slow down because you got to get, you, know, you got to get a weight to get on the course a little bit um, that they have seen basically an explosion in popularity on these pieces of the property, some of which were dormant. There's one example, I think it was Forest Dunes in Michigan, in uh, Roscommon, Michigan, that this piece of the property was built when uh, Tom Weiskopf was doing the, the Forest Dunes course uh, back at the turn of the millennium. <clears throat> and then five or six years later, it was just never being used. Their putting course was never being used. So they basically just abandoned it. It was like a kind of a dormant piece of property. They had new ownership come in. They had uh, some, some fresh bread coming in. And uh, they didn't have a ton of work to do a reinvestment to go back to this putting course. It's a two-acre property there. And they just tell me it's used throughout the day. All day, there's people out there. You pointed out too in the story Thistledew at Pinehurst Resort, <clears throat> they've now broken it up into two nine-hole courses essentially to get more people out there. So whether it's uh, Michigan, whether <laughs> it's North Carolina, you mentioned Oregon, uh, all over the country, the rounds are increasing whether they're accurate round counts or not. Uh, at least anecdotally, there sure seem to be a lot more people out putting nine or 18 holes. It'll be interesting, Matt, to measure, as I think we're all curious to see what the pandemic timeline has done, or maybe it's in the past tense, did for the rise in golf participation. The timeline that we're talking about in recent years with a lot of these properties has happened in kind. Uh, now that a lot of the world has come back, other opportunities have, have come back in some parts of the country for a good long while now see if golf maintains the surge in popularity that it enjoyed. And I think that these putting courses are going to go hand in hand. 
I mean, hell, maybe you and I will be having a conversation in 10 years where a place, I don't want to specify what bad juju on Forest Dunes, maybe I'll have a conversation 10 years saying, oh, that piece of property is dormant again. I hope not. We don't rank courses. We don't even really reference course rankings ever in anything that we publish. But at what point, Judd, do you think that there's going to be a top 25, top 50, maybe even a top 100 for putting courses across the U.S.? This has to be coming at some point. I would say that I would anticipate that is not too far behind. Uh, A lot of the big resorts, places that we intentionally did not cover because they already get enough love, but a lot of the big resorts like Bandon or Sand Valley, of course, did get Pinehurst in here, but I I thought that was important because of Thistledew's history. Right. It's, It's 106 years old. Right. Yeah. So they, they needed to, to be included. And I like Bob Farron over there. Dude, dude, dude's, dude's a good guy. He's a real, he's a real straight shooter. So yeah. I was like interviewing him for golf course industry. But given that a lot of these big boys have invested in this property and a lot of courses around the country, this isn't just a certain region or a certain distinct type of like one kind of property, like a property that's got a bunch of courses like Pinehurst or a resort property where people go on vacation. These are all different types of properties that have included this, which to answer your question is to say that, yeah, ranking of these courses probably coming and worthy. I'll leave you with this again, Flastic Fever in the June issue, really fun read, really informative read, and probably the future for a lot of facilities. If you have any extra land, even an acre, to uh, to work with. Are there any putting courses that you came across in your research, Judd, that now you absolutely want to get out to if you're in the area and play, you know, for 30, 60, 90 minutes? Probably have to go across the pond for that, the inception <laughs> of the putting course, uh, given the timing of uh, the summer. Uh, of course, the, Him- the Himalayas, of course, at uh, the old course at uh, St. Andrews, which is basically right off of uh, the old course, um, the two-acre, very, very historic property, the first putting course in the world at the, at the home of golf. Made it to Ireland. I've never made it to Scotland. I got to say that that's the one that, uh, that I got to get. All right. Well, we talk about courses and facilities that don't need any extra pub. The old course, of course, doesn't need any extra <laughs> But if anybody at the old course is listening and you want to help Judd get out to Scotland and play a few courses there, including the Himalayas. Uh, I'm sure you'll be willing to take that cross-country and transcontinental flight in a heartbeat. Absolutely. Probably should have lined it up for this summer. (laughs) Judd Spicer, our West Coast correspondent. Always great to talk with you. Uh, I understand you're traveling back home to Minnesota soon. Safe travels and and wish we could sync up there, but... uh, get to some courses and, and always keep the good work going. Flat stick fever was a lot of fun. Appreciate it, Matt. Been a spell since uh, we've had a, uh, a chat on the podcast. So thank you for having me back. And really, truly, always a pleasure to write for golf course industry. This was a fun one put together, and we got a couple of really cool ones coming up for months ahead. Not going to say a word about those, but they will be. You're right. It's a carrot. It's a dangler. Yeah. Very judge stories. I love them. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Thanks again to Judd Spicer, Cassidy Gladio, and Guy Cipriano for taking some time to go beyond the page 
Thanks to our sponsor, CPRO, which provides industry-leading turf plant growth regulators like Cutlass, Legacy, and Musketeer to the golf industry, along with disease, weed, and aquatic management solutions, whose full lineup of products works hard to ensure your course is consistently looking its best and who is always available online at cpro.com. And thanks to all of you for listening to all the podcasts on the Superintendent Radio Network. New episodes of Off the Course, Greens with Envy, Tartan Talks, and Beyond the Page drop on Tuesdays. Real Turf Techs with Trent Manning drops on the third Wednesday of each month. And Wonderful Women of Golf with Rick Wolfel drops on the first Thursday of each month. Our June issue is online now at www.golfcourseindustry.com slash magazine with our cover package about turf Twitter, Judd's story about putting courses, a great feature by Ron Furlong about collars, and lots more. Even more stories and news are available in our fast and firm email newsletter that's delivered every Tuesday to your inbox. You can sign up directly on our homepage at www.golfcourseindustry.com. Golf Course Industry is produced by Guy Cipriano and me, Matt Lowell. Our columnists are wonderful Terry Buchan, Henry DeLozier, Bradley S. Klein, Tim Morrigan, and Matthew Wharton. We have some fantastic regular contributors to Trent Bouts, Tyler Bloom, Lee Carr, Ron Furlong, Trent Manning, Judd Spicer, John Torciello, Anthony Williams, and Rick Wolfel. Cassidy Gladio is our summer editorial assistant. Our publisher is Dave Zai. Russ Warner is our national sales manager. Jim Blaney designs the magazine. Caitlin Sellers and Amanda Cafardi make sure everything goes where it should. Christina Warner makes sure you all receive the magazine. Kelly Antle makes sure we all get paid. Irene Sweeney does everything and more. Ryan Jacobs, Anna Kolar, Cody Minnick, Tom Bauman, Brock Andorada, and Patrick Briand are our IT team. Our president is Chris Foster. Above all else, we couldn't do what we do without all of you. Thank you so much for listening.